I mean, it's like, it's every time. It just, it's so powerful. I'm just kidding. Hi, my name's Cole. I'm the youth pastor. Um, I get to bring the sermon this morning, um, which I'm grateful for. We are in the middle of our saints sermon, and I'm bringing, I'm presenting to you a, a, a saint by the name of Catherine Lacuna. Um, I don't know if you've ever heard her name before. Um, I'm excited to introduce her to you. Uh, yeah, that'll be good. I want to, before we get to that, there's a lot of people here who helped out yesterday. Uh, yesterday was one of the longer work days we've ever had, ever, ever, ever. So uh, if you were here for work day, can you just go ahead and raise your hand or help out at all? Can you just do this? Uh, give these people a huge round of applause. Yeah. It was, uh, it, was quite, it was quite a work day, so I am really grateful for all the work that everybody did. I'm unbelievably grateful for the work you all did. Thank you. Okay, so our saint this morning is named Catherine Lacuna. I was introduced to her by my Doctrine of the Trinity professor, Dr. Steve McCormick. He, he told us to read this book um, called God for Us, The Trinity and the Christian Life. Um, and in the book, I have to say, Lacuna doesn't necessarily present anything super new. However, the reason she is so important is that while a lot of theologians say a lot of things uh, and just lean on their own interpretations, what was, it's noticeable. Like what's so wildly impressive about this book is that Lacuna does something a lot of theologians don't do. The first half of the book is entirely church history on the development of the problem dating back like thousands of years. She just masterfully weaves this together in the first half of the book. And then in the second half of the book, she, it's like she crosses the globe to find theologians and philosophers who have done the work to answer these little tiny things and then weaves them together to answer the problem that she presents. It is, it's, a, it's a masterful book. I, I would encourage you, if anything, I'm not... I'm, I would uh, hope that this sermon piques your interest to research her and maybe even read this book. Dr. Lacuna was born August 6, 1952, and she died May 3rd, 1997, in Indiana. And she's often described as a feminist Catholic theologian, which always irks me a bit. Uh, describing her work as a feminist Catholic theologian is like saying Led Zeppelin is a rock band from the 60s and 70s. It's like, I guess, I mean, technically, yes, but she's doing something really huge here, really important. Um, Dr. Lacuna was a professor at Vassar College, Fordham University, and in 1981, she was hired to teach at a small school called the University of Notre Dame. So if you were paying attention um, to the date of her birth and the date of her passing, you might have noticed that Lacuna died at the age of 44. She actually died of cancer. And I'll never forget my professor as he was introducing the book. Um, he got a little emotional. Like, he doesn't really do that very often. He got a little emotional, and he told the class that we lost a, a, a mind and a voice that never finished her work. He said that God for us, this book was so wonderful that a lot of uh, people in the theological wor world were excited to see what else she would write and explore. And we never got that opportunity. Lacuna, Dr. Lacuna, uh, did write three books. The first book is The Theological Methodology of Hans Kung. I will not be reading that one. Uh, she wrote, the second book was Freeing Theology, The Essentials of Theology and Feminist Perspective. 
1991, six years before her death, she wrote her masterpiece, God for Us, The Trinity and Christian Life. Lacunia's main project throughout her work was to reimagine the doctrine of the Trinity to save the church from itself. And, and let me just read to you the opening line of her book, God for Us. Because I love her pinpoint precision and clarity. When you read it, you're like, I know exactly what she's trying to say. The doctrine of the Trinity is ultimately a practical doctrine with radical consequences for Christian life. That is the thesis of this book. The doctrine of the Trinity, which is the specifically Christian way of speaking about God, summarizes what it means to participate in the life of God through Jesus Christ in the Spirit. Okay, so now, listen to this next line. And remember, she's writing this secretly, knowing that she's just been given a cancer diagnosis. The mystery of God is revealed in Christ and the Spirit as the mystery of persons in communion who embrace death, sin, and all forms of alienation for the sake of life. What a line. The mystery of God is revealed in Christ and the Spirit as the mystery of love, the mystery of persons in communion who embrace death, sin, and all forms of alienation for the sake of life. So a couple things I need to point out to you before we move on. Lacunia is very interested in the idea of persons and its connection to the image of God and, and the sacredness of all creation. And we will discuss this in a second. Lacunia has some things to say about the doctrine of the Trinity and why this uh, language is so important for the future of the church. However, this morning, let's start with Superman. <laughs> Superman is a comic book character in the DC Comics universe. If you don't know that, I can't help you. I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what else to say. Uh, but I have, a, I have a very simple question for you. Uh, is Superman a human being? Answer it in your own mind. Is Superman a human being? I think a pretty clear answer here is no, right? Superman is Kryptonian. I know if you're like, what's happening right now? Just bear with me. Superman is Kryptonian. He has a different DNA structure than human beings who belong to planet Earth, right? Okay, one more question, though. Is Superman a person? Now, it's interesting, because, like, human being and person seem to be like, wait, yes. So, uh, Superman is a person, even though he is Kryptonian. He is, seems to be capable of communicating and loving and all the things that make persons persons, whatever that is. And we just kind of sense, right? Now, Rocket Raccoon. Good. Rocket Raccoon is a genetically and cybernetically enhanced raccoon. This is, this is my sermon. Okay. <laughs> genetically and cybernetically enhanced raccoon turned freelance mercenary, turned member of the Guardians of the Galaxy. He was born on Half-World. But here's the question. Is Rocket Raccoon a human? No. He's a Half-Worldian raccoon. He is not human, right? question, though, is Rocket Raccoon a person? Is it? Yes. I think. 
But I'm sure, as we might have seen here, our brains do a kind of gymnastics, right, in, internally, that, that you, you didn't have to do necessarily with Superman. There's something about Rocket Raccoon that seems a little more distant from personhood than Superman. Rocket looks very different than us, while Superman looks exactly like us. And it's easy to say that Superman is a person. It's a bit harder to imagine personhood in Rocket. Maybe not much harder, but a little, even though all of the characteristics of personhood are there, he just kind of looks weird, and it's just a little bit different than what we can imagine, right? Okay, question. What about this cow? All right? Is this a person? Wait, how about this dog, right? Your family pet. Is your family pet a little more person than a cow? Question, how about this fish? Okay, wait, what about this plant? Okay, these, these weird conversations about personhood are old conversations that date back thousands of years. For a long time, we have been discussing what makes a person a person. What is a person? Can you give up your personhood? Are we born with personhood or do we grow into it? Is it a sliding scale, right? What makes personhood? Consciousness, the ability to choose, communicate. Be careful how you answer this question because you might walk out here, become unconscious for some reason, and then we have some questions about, like, is this, is this person a person? I don't know what's happening right now. Okay, be careful how you answer it. What does all this have to do with lacunia? The reason the whole conversation about personhood and humankind is important is that while philosophers talk about personhood, the scriptures talk about this thing called the image of God. And a lot of theologians want, they work to connect these two things, or at least in, in, they think in some way they're interconnected. But there's one thing that we as Christians have been fighting about for a long time. This is not settled. Where do we locate the image of God in humans? Where is personhood rooted exactly? And how you answer that question, which, by the way, we all have answered that question, we just might not be aware of it, is wildly important to so many things about how you think about the world and other people and yourself and God. So let's look at our text. Genesis chapter 1. We're gonna, I'm going to break it down for like the... The part we're going to read here. <clears throat> and God said, by the way, you're welcome. The text is huge. Okay. And God said, let the land produce living creatures according to their kinds. The livestock, the creatures that move along the ground and the wild animals, each according to its kind. And it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kinds. The livestock according to their kinds. And all the creatures that move along the ground according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind, or humankind, in his own image, in the image of God, he created them. So many thinkers and theologians want to say that the image of God is not, is not someone's humanness. The image of God has nothing to do with DNA. You could say human beings were created in the garden like everyone else. They're just, but they're just part of creation, right? They're part, humans are creation. But God gave human beings personhood 
which is maybe another way of saying the image of God. And you notice I'm hedging, because there's not a lot of consensus about this, on how it all works out. But what Lacuna does in her book for us is she unpacks why this conversation is so important and makes this giant shift, right, that I want to present to you this morning. And then I want to tell you why it's so important to me and why I wanted to present it this morning. So many Western Christians, most of us, uh, especially Protestants, most of us, have for centuries rooted personhood in this thing we call an essence, an essence. What is an essence? Well, you heard me earlier say that undefinable sense that Superman is like us, whatever that means. And, and well, this is kind of how people sound when they start talking about an essence. For instance, let's take a look at this chair. There's a chair right there. Now, uh, we know what that chair is. We all kind of, in some way, have a sense of what that chair is. Now, let's take away a piece. We just click the next one. Is this still a chair? You're like, yeah, yeah, it's still a chair. Okay, let's take away this piece. Okay, is this still a chair? Like, it's not a great chair, but it's still kind of a chair. Let's take away the next piece. Is this still a chair? And I'm sure many of us in the room, as I can see heads, some are like, yeah, it's still a chair. Or some people are like, mm, I don't know. Something, something's happening to it to where it's losing its essence, its chairness. Does this make sense? And here's the problem I've been alluding to. Lacuna looks at Western Christians and sees a problem with how we understand personhood, how we understand essence, and how we think about the image of God. Western Christians root personhood in a monolithic essence, a one essence. And we get this idea from how we understand God. For Western Christians, God is three persons, right, with one essence. And that essence is something that sits at the heart of God, and out of it comes the three persons of God. And so Western Christians have given for centuries lip service to the three, but they really care about that one monolithic essence. Let's describe it. Let's define it. Where does it begin? Where does it end? Who has it? Who doesn't? They, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, sure, but like, let's talk about that oneness, right? Therefore, as we then read that we are made in the image of God, maybe you're tracking with me, we then begin to imagine ourselves as, and you maybe have heard this analogy before, as a father, sure, or a mother, I'm a worker, Right? I'm a husband and a wife. I'm, I'm these different roles, but really there's one me deep down in my heart. I have a true me in here, and that is my real person. I do a lot of other things, and, but really there's, like, there's a one me. And here's the brilliant thing that Lacunia says. If we root personhood in some monolithic me that sits at the center of me, then personhood is shaped and defined and only understood by me. Remember when I was talking about Superman and I said essence is that undefinable sense that Superman is like us, like me, and those who I allow in my community? The problem is, this is the problem, by rooting personhood in some mono essence and therefore within human bodies only, we wall off our ability to see the image of God in others unless they act, look, 
believe, think, and behave like me. Right? The more someone looks, acts, thinks, believes, and behaves like me, the more I'm likely to treat them with reverence and see their moral choices as sacred. The less someone looks, acts, believes, and thinks like me and my people, the harder it is for me to see the image of God in them. And this is just like not so much evil intentions, it's just a natural outflowing of how we understand God. The harder it is, right, the less someone looks, acts, believes, and things like me, the harder it is for me to grant them the same rights, privileges, and dignity of life. And sometimes I can, we can completely justify in our minds stripping away their personhood and making their bodies expendable. From slavery to the Holocaust, I don't think I need to completely show you how this can be a giant issue. So Lacunia, right, she's just like getting after it here. I love this. Lacunia pulls together writers from the past few centuries to make the case that instead of rooting personhood in essence, we, we might want to start thinking about Genesis 1 a little bit differently. She wants to take a closer look at it one more time. Let's take a look at this. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals and over the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Weirdly, and by the way, Jewish writers throughout time, if you want to find a thing that they, that they become obsessed with, especially for Jewish people who believe in one God, right? Let us make mankind in our image, and it's right at the beginning of the Torah. They're like, wait, what is happening here? <laughs> What is God's image if you, think God, if you think of God as triune, right? What is the image of God exactly if you think of God as Father, Son, and Spirit? Three in one and one in three. And Lacuna takes this very seriously and says, if we root the image of God in an essence found within me, then I can only see the image of God in you if you are in some general sense like me. Except this time, she serves up an actual alternative. Everybody with me? I know this is heady. Okay, okay. She says, and she reminds us, the East actually does not have an issue with this. In fact, Lacuna takes a survey of eight different thinkers, from Scotland to Egypt to Constantinople, from philosophers to anthropologists to theologians to clergy. It is full-on, like, researched. She says that the Western view of God and the self is not only dying, it's eating itself. However, there has been another way this whole time. She says maybe we should look at an Eastern understanding of these problems. Instead of rooting personhood or the image of God in some monolithic essence, right, we need to root personhood and the image of God in relationship, God's three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, do not emerge from one mono-essence, but rather the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are rooted and bound up together in a loving community, a dynamic relation. And she takes that word relation very seriously. 
This dynamic relationship is a thing she's like, we need to pay attention to. For instance, the Father is only the Father because of the Son and the Spirit. The Spirit is only the Spirit because of the Father and Son, and the Son is only the Son because of the Father and the Spirit. The relationship is constitutive of the person of the Trinity. The relationship out of it emerges the personhood. Maybe you're already seeing where Lacunia is going. If not, stay with me. Surprisingly, my sermon is almost over. (laughs) (laughs) Found within God is not a monolithic static thing, right? It's not, it's a dynamic communion, a relationship of, a relationship, and this is the key, different persons. At the center of God is a community not some monolithic uniformity in any way, shape, or form. Lacuna says, to be made in the image of God is to be be capable of deep, disjunctive relationship of difference. And when we are in this kind of communion, maybe Jesus, words of Jesus, loving your enemies, right? When we are capable and working towards this kind of communion, we are only then becoming aware of the image of God. The image of God is relation, including all the struggles and all the pains and all the change that is required to stay in relationship. Here's the cool part. When we are in a disjunctive and dynamic relationship of love and grace, Lacunia writes that personhood emerges amongst us amongst us. Personhood emerges from relationship. It does not emerge from within oneself. You cannot go into yourself and just find your true self and your true meaning and your, and your true purpose in life, right? Teenagers, if you're a teenager, if you're in the room, if you could just sit in a room and conjure up your true self and your true convictions of who you are, your parents would not be that concerned about your friends. Uh, but something tells me they, most parents have this intrinsic sense of like, They understand the power of friendship in shaping the human person. (laughs) By being in relationship with ourselves, others, God, and creation, we are participating in God by loving and exuding grace to everything we are in relation with. Dynamic relation, Lacuna is saying, is imbuing personhood upon the world. Like, whoa. Relationship is birthing all of creation as sacred. All of creation as capable of God. I didn't say all of creation is God. I said all of creation as capable of God. Here's why this matters to me so much. This is why this matters. And this is why when I read this, I put the book down and I'm like, Oh, it's like, you know, like a good therapy session when you know something's true, but you don't have the courage to say it, and then something kind of lets you get permission to say it, and you finally say it out loud, and you're like, yeah, okay, that's, that's been true this whole time. I just was trying to get there. I'm a youth pastor, and at times, I get to talk to parents, and this is often sometimes difficult because I'm never really sure exactly what their ultimate goal is when it comes to me and their child, like what, what's happening here. However, I always feel these, like while I'm having these conversations, I always feel these outside pressures, sometimes making parents say things 
that even they can't believe they're saying to me. Like, it happens all the time. They're like, I can't believe I'm saying this to you, but blah, 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 blah. Uh, you know, sometimes we want our kids to be a Christian, and they, we want their, their, our kids to have access to all the good reasons to be a Christian and, and know why we believe stuff. And, and I do too. I want them to know what their faith is. And sometimes we want our children to do the right thing, you know, and never do the wrong thing, whatever that might be in whatever form that takes. And I do too, in some sense. I, I want our, our, our children amongst us to learn wise choices. Sometimes it's simply we want our kids to take a normal route to adulthood and get a job and income and just not have any serious problems. Sometimes, most of the time, I would say, parents simply don't want their kids to experience the pains they felt growing up. I mean, I think that's fairly honest, authentic to say. So we just try to figure out ways to help our kids avoid the struggles that we went through. Whatever it is, and there are all sorts of motivations. Parents often see my role as a, as a helper for their students, and they see me as someone who, is, who has answers and strategies. And sometimes it's like, you're a youth soothsayer, talk to my kid, all right? And I'm not sure, but the truth is, I do read a lot of things about youth culture and, and young people, and there are definitely things that I've learned and strategies, and I'm constantly paying attention to young people and the complexities of their life. But I will tell you the truth. And Lacunia has given me full permission to say this with the backing of the fullness of the Trinity. <laughs> uh, I just want to be a friend with your student at the end of the day. And our small group leaders are simply working to be friends with your students. We don't really have outcomes in mind. I mean, sometimes we do. But we're trying hard to just be friends. And I believe this with every fiber of my body. And I don't mean to disrespect anyone in this room at all. Look, schools, schools, teachers, coaches, sports club, theater, band, counselors, all are important. Parents, essential. Grandparents, wildly important. But I believe this with every fiber of my body. Teenagers, teenagers need deep and honest, cruciform relationships, friendships, with a community, community of people, a community of adults who have no power over them. Adults and students that they can tell the truth of their life to, and in some sense, they won't immediately be in trouble or exposed, as the kids say. Teenagers need relationships in and through a cruciform community that reflects the image of God on them over and over and over again. That reminds them that they are seen, they are heard, whew, their life is sacred. and that they belong in and through this place and these people. And we would not be the same without them. We would not be the same person without the relationship with them. And that they are invited to participate in this place as equal members with us. Your teenager needs this. And I'm preaching this to a bunch of adults because I don't think that magically changes when we turn 18. <laughs> So, we're about to watch a highlight video from our high school retreat. We just went on this last weekend, and uh, then I will pray, and, or actually, we're going to watch the video, and then Mandy's just going to come up straight afterwards and lead us in communion. As you watch it, I just ask that you 
see these fun times and these friendships and these hilarious little moments, I pray that you see them as sacred. In, the t- in a time when the fabric of our relationships are being frayed and stretched and maybe unraveling, may we see the fidelity of our students to each other as the place where the triune God is not only breaking into their lives, but maybe the retreats and as you watch this video, these small glimpses of the fun we had together, the relationship building we had with each other, might be the source of the triune God for you, reminding you of something maybe we've forgotten. Maybe God is trying to present to you. Maybe you need to be reminded of who we are as a people in the salvific power, and I mean that, salvific power of God in a weird, disjunctive community of different people working to be faithful to each other and to the neighborhood over a long period of time. This is what Catherine Lacuna did for me. She gave me permission to say that the church, that these relationships, these just simple relationships of self-sacrificial love and grace really actually matter. And this is how God breaks into our world and makes us, our neighbors, and all of creation sacred. Let's watch the video.